0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 88, by Rudolf Steiner, translated by James Hines, entitled Concerning the Astral World and Devakon, Listener's Notes from Sixteen Lectures, by Rudolf Steiner. This is Lecture 4, entitled The Being and Nature of the Astral World, given in Berlin on November 18, 1903. Olympiodorus, an ancient writer, occasionally refers to one of Plato's works, on Odysseus's journey to Hades. As you all know, in the great Homeric epic, the Odyssey, we are told that Odysseus was supposed to have descended into the underworld. Those who know the language of Greek initiates, who wrote something like this, will know that a descent into the underworld always signifies initiation into the mysteries, a crossing of the threshold of the gate of death during life. In this particular case, it also signifies getting to know the astral world. This descent of Odysseus into the underworld means nothing other than that Odysseus learns to know the astral world. We are told, among other things, that Odysseus saw three deceased men in the underworld, Titios, Sisyphus and Tantalus. First he saw Titios as he lay on the ground and two vultures gnawed on his liver. Tantalus he saw standing on a lake, suffering burning thirst. When he bent over to drink, the water receded, so that he could not reach it. Tantalus also suffered hunger. There was a tree with apples above him, but when he reached for them, they slipped away. These are pictures that should show us the forms that desires take after death in the astral world. They show us the human being's dependence upon desires and how they are expressed. The first, Titios, lies on the earth, and an evil power, a vulture, gnaws on his liver. This picture points to his dependence upon the lower sensual life, and shows that in the long run it can bring no satisfaction. Sisyphus, the greedy one, is tortured through the fact that his wishes, which arise again and again, can never be satisfied. Tantalus is dependent on pictures of a fantasy-filled power of imagination, and must experience fully the eternal dissatisfaction of such imagination. Pictures are given here for our astral life. Those whose sight has been opened for the astral world can speak only in such pictures. Clairvoyants know how insufficient the words of our everyday language are to describe what they see in the astral world. Our language can only be a feeble means to describe in words what is to be expressed. For this reason, I will hardly be able to give you anything other than pictures today, imagery of the beings with which a clairvoyant becomes acquainted when his or her eyes are opened. These are beings that inhabit our space, even if we are not aware of them in physical life. The astral world is full of colors that a clairvoyant sees as external reality. Someone who looks only at the physical appearance of a person and sees therein the entire entity of that person is no different from someone who would claim that a person has disappeared when he or she enters the door of a house and is no longer visible. We know that the person still exists and it is only the walls that block our view. And just as the walls of the house conceal the person So does the bodily nature of a human being conceal what we have just spoken of. It conceals the astral, because that is invisible for ordinary senses. So too are the beings that have no physical bodily nature, yet are present in the astral space, even though they are not perceptible for physical eyes. And they are all just as present in the astral space as in physical space. The first thing that we see when we enter into astral space, that is, the first thing we see when our astral eyes are opened for us, is that we find ourselves enveloped in an astral body. All desires, passions, sensations, and so forth live in this astral body. We see clearly what otherwise lies closed in human nature. Everything that is hidden becomes visible when we behold the human aura in wave-like movements with a certain luminous force, what I have called the astral streams forth from the astral body, the human being's entire world of feelings and sensations. I would like to mention a few details that will show you how much of what we usually do not understand immediately becomes understandable. We often find that certain people, when standing at the edge of a cliff, display an irresistible urge to throw themselves off, despite the fact that they defend themselves against this urge with all their strength. Or one can see the kind of thoughts that pass through a human soul when a person has a knife in hand. All these things have a deep rationale in the astral body. The reason is that in our astral body, we have a being entirely different from the one who greets us in a human being's external appearance. These beings are subject to their destiny, their karma. Those who have certain desires in life have gone through particular experiences in an earlier life, which can be deeply buried by a person's conscious mind in the present incarnation. But they sleep in the astral body. Assume a person took part in a gruesome war in an earlier life. In such a case, you will see in his or her aura how all these horrors were built into the astral body and now this person in the present physical incarnation must endure difficult battles with them. Just as threads are woven between a previous life and this one, so also are threads from the present woven into later lives. Clairvoyants see all of this. They see how the karma of a human being is formed, and they also see how, for example, a person cleverly seeks to suppress an inclination or how he or she pushes back certain feelings. The clairvoyant sees into the ground of the soul. Those who have the gift of seeing do not consider it to be a desirable gift that brings joy in all circumstances, especially so when people have feelings that they are better off not having. And for beginners, cellas, it is often calamitous for them, because they are easily attracted to everything that they now behold then we find in astral space the essence of the waking and sleeping human being. What does that mean, waking and sleeping? This is something that we usually simply accept without any precise or specific concept. A human being of the present age does not immediately recognize what lives in us. The higher self rests in us. We think and act out of our higher self. But we human beings of the fifth root race, our present age, do not see this higher self. Everything that our consciousness offers us is only a mirror image of our higher self. We human beings see ourselves only as a mirror image. Our brain is our mirror. What our mirror throws back to us is not our real self, which slumbers deep within us and cannot immediately be seen. It is the physical body alone that can tire. During sleep, it ceases its activity as a mirror. The higher self, which is mirrored in the external person, does not tire. It withdraws more or less from the physical body. While the body sleeps, the higher self leaves. Freed from the external bodily nature, the external human being, the higher self can conduct its business in astral space. A seer sees this activity in astral space. Human beings of the present stage of evolution leave their bodies during sleep. They wander in the astral world, sometimes great distances from their physical body, and come together there with other beings of the astral world and cultivate an exchange with their thoughts. However, they do not remember this upon awakening. This fact is connected with their present stage of development. However, evolution can always become higher and higher. Students who learn under the direction of a so-called master can gradually make their consciousness continuous, ongoing. Then they will be able to bring the experiences they have during the night into consciousness. When cellas, students, achieve continuity of consciousness, then they remember what they received in the astral world. Cella's knowledge is not learned in the physical world, but rather it is experienced in the astral world and then brought into their physical life. This is what Plato meant when speaking of, in quotes, remembering. Cella's are in a position to make the consciousness that is constantly interrupted in average people into a continuous consciousness. They do this when they have achieved the gift of making their mirror not only in the physical body, but in the higher elements of the human being's nature. The mirror image of the self arises for the average person out of the solid physical body. One could also say that such people become aware of themselves. Those who have achieved a higher step become aware of themselves not merely in the physical world but also in the astral. Their self shines toward them out of the astral. Thus in the astral plane they encounter primarily other cellas, the students that are in a position to bring their consciousness up into the astral region. Raising consciousness up to the astral region is what is also the content of theosophical teaching and the content of instruction that a highly developed master imparts to his students. The exchange between the master and the cella takes place in astral space. What theosophy has to offer is a translation of this instruction in the astral world into physical words, in physical sentences. Thus we have already learned about two different kinds of beings that we meet in the astral world, masters and students. Additionally, we have those people who are also psychically developed but did not have any regular instruction, the somnambulists, who have an ambiguous consciousness, You know that there are people for whom it is possible to have very special perceptions at certain times, even without instruction from a master. These perceptions are independent of their senses. But only those who enter astral regions through theosophical training are free from error. A theosophist knows how to distinguish between what originates from pathological conditions and deeper truth. If we follow a somnambulist in waking states, And in trance states, we see that the soul can exit the body and become seeing. However, we would not believe a word the somnambulist says unless we had proof that this undisciplined seeing agreed with the vision of a clairvoyant. Students who have developed continuous consciousness, who see astral things just as they see tables and chairs, also know that somnambulists, in their special states, sometimes see things accurately. They have the ability to lift the self out of the body for a time, and in this way to see what cannot be seen with ordinary senses. These souls that are freed for a time from their bodies are the third group of inhabitants you can meet in the astral space. The fourth kind of being that we meet in the astral world is something less cheerful. They are the destroyers and devastators in the astral world. I have often mentioned that our physical world was preceded by another, the fruit of which we enjoy. We can call our earth the cosmos of love, the place where we are trained in love until it will have reached the highest step in our round. When we survey this evolution and direct our gaze toward what will be present in the future, then we know that the earth is a school for the development of love. Still. We must also direct our gaze toward what was already present in an earlier condition. The earth, our celestial body, was born out of another. The celestial body that preceded the earth was old moon. What we need to walk our earthly path was prepared on old moon. Our physical organs have been formed out of what we went through on old moon. On that earlier planetary stage, the cosmos of wisdom we formed the organs for sensation and human feeling. The body of feeling sensation was formed at that time. At that time when we human beings began our evolution, the ability to feel and sense was woven into our physical body. Just consider how much wisdom was added to the chemical constitution of our physical body through weaving sensations and feelings into it. Our task in earthly life is to purify these sensations and feelings, to ennoble them into moral sensations and moral feelings. Just as we have the task on earth to develop moral instincts and feelings, so during that time, on the cosmos of wisdom that preceded ours, the highest task of the beings there was to create a wisdom-filled structure for our sense organs. Those beings had to devote themselves to developing the senses. The functioning of the senses arose through boundless wisdom. Consider this, that beings have had different tasks in the various successive cosmic states. In order to make these different tasks understandable, imagine a piano maker and a piano player. The piano maker must dedicate himself with love and devotion to the structure and creation of the piano. He has thus a different task from the one who is to play the piano. Both the builder and the player have their specific tasks, and both bring about the good in their work. However, if the builder of the piano wanted to work on the piano in the concert hall, sawing and pounding with a hammer, he would be working only in a destructive way, Indeed, there he is useless, no matter how great he may be as a master piano builder. Thus you will find in the astral world such beings who achieved a great virtuosity in the making of the sense organs, but did not relinquish this inclination when the transition to another stage of development occurred. They are masters in the development of sensory matter, but they are as useless in our present evolution as a piano builder is in a concert hall. Now their work is destructive and devastating. They are evil spirits at work in the wrong place, for they cling to forces that the human being needs as a substructure, and they do not lead human development further. These beings may be very highly developed, but they have a tendency that no longer fits into our evolution. For this reason they can become dangerous for a cella, a beginner who is just learning to see in the astral world. Beginners can be attracted to these beings and thus wind up on wrong paths. There are other beings in the astral world who do not descend into a physical incarnation and are revealed only in astral space. They cannot be perceived by those who can see only in the physical bodily world. These beings are noble and their striving is directed only toward the development of humanity. They do not have human desires. They are not attached to the earthly. They have achieved through work the stage of development in which they have become helpers of humankind. They are not there for pleasure. Nevertheless, we find them in astral space because they are waiting there for the determination of their future tasks. In order to understand how this happens and its significance, we must make clear with a few words. What will then be the subject of the sixth lecture, the conditions in Kamaloka? When human beings leave their physical body behind, it is given over to the earth, so too are the life forces. Then we enter into the astral world, the region of desires. We spend a period of time in this astral world. Then we enter into Devakan, in order after that to descend again into Incarnation. This is our normal post-death development. We go through two worlds, the world of the astral and the world of pure spirit, in order afterward to be mature enough for our next incarnation. In this next incarnation, we then enjoy the fruits of earlier lives. Quote, "...God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap." Close quote. Consider this, that more highly developed people can have a richer harvest in the spiritual world but then they are free to return to the earth after a short time to help those who have remained behind in their spiritual development. Thus the highly developed can forego the spiritual stay in Devakan and wait until a master shows them their next incarnation. We encounter these figures among the so-called disembodied. There are still higher beings which are visible in our time only to the most highly spiritually evolved people. These beings will abide only rarely in the astral world because they have their home in still higher regions, on yet higher levels of the spiritual world. When chelas are further developed, they acquire the ability to have their consciousness not only in the astral world, but also in the still higher world, in the spiritual or devakonic world, which is higher than the astral world. In this higher world, their higher self is mirrored. We experience ourselves in the higher spiritual regions as the mirror image that we see in the physical world. The beings that belong here are visible only to those who are more highly developed. These beings also can forego nirvana, a state that can be considered the highest task of our earthly existence. Such beings can forego nirvana, They can return to the earthly world, to which they themselves have no need to return, in order to help human beings. Such beings are called Nirmanakayas. They are in a position to descend out of the spiritual world into the astral world, and in order to have a point of attack there, they take on an astral body. They do that in order to help human beings. Those are the Nirmanakayas, which we can meet in the astral world, if only rarely. I am speaking here of beings that are not visible for physical eyes, but only for eyes that can receive impressions from astral space. If eyes can perceive impressions in the astral world, then they can perceive nirmanakayas there, and also human beings located between death and their next incarnation. I will still speak about this in the next lectures. In the astral world we also meet beings that are not understandable to beginners. These are beings of the highest inner mobility. They take on various forms and shapes and they display an entirely different connection to the world than does the human astral body. The human astral body has a shape enclosed with boundaries. It has specific contours. The astral bodies of animals do not have such specific contours. The astral bodies of animals appear entirely different. They belong not to an individual being, Rather, group souls are present for entire groups of animals. Individual physical animals hang from a common clade, so to speak, or species. A kind of strand then extends from the individual animal to the group soul that moves the animals. You can also discover certain animal forms in the astral world that cannot be met in the physical world. These astral bodies are, for human beings, still in a state of becoming who are building and shaping their astral bodies and developing further in order to form a suitable vehicle for those who are coming down out of the spiritual world. But this is by far not all the beings to be found in the astral world. We also meet beings in the astral world of a nature that is difficult to describe, beings whose magnitude we cannot even survey. These are beings so grand that it seems their dimensions extend over our entire planetary system. These beings whose compass spans the entire earth show clearly that they have something to do with our earthly evolution, but we earthly human beings can hardly form an idea of them. These beings present in all kinds of variations are connected to all our evolutionary development. They progressed through an evolution in earlier rounds of Earth's development. Three rounds preceded our Earth, and three rounds will follow. These beings, which in the earliest and still more spiritual religions were called Devas, will have achieved a higher development when our Earth has attained its goal. They are thought of as similar to human beings because people are unable to form any real idea of them. However, those people who know something about these things find that the path of cosmological evolution is indicated here. When a cosmos begins to develop in the first, second, and third rounds, it is the same as when a child develops in the first three years of life. Thereby is shown the path, so to speak, that it will take in life. Only then does its actual task in the cosmos come along. We call it the truth of the cosmos. The truth has been revealed for our present earth. The three preceding rounds of its developmental path represent the path. The truth is the external arrangement of this path in our present evolution of the earth. The third part of evolution, the life we will go through when we will have increasingly permeated our soul with the truth. We will learn to recognize and know the truth. The truth, however, will become our life. Then we will no longer need to struggle for the truth. This struggle is still necessary in order to lead us to a moral and good life. This truth will penetrate us in the future. It will become our lifeblood. For this reason, the one who is a representative of the wisdom streaming through the cosmos has taken these three concepts into his consciousness and expressed them in the words, quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Close quote. The end of Lecture 4.